right, so if you've got your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. And I'll have the uh, words up on the screen here in just a little bit. Uh, we are looking at what it means to experience Emmanuel. And we're looking at some familiar passages this Advent season. And this morning, we're looking at the passage where the angels come and announce to the shepherds that are tending their flocks on the, on the side of the field there in Bethlehem that the Savior has been born. And we look at how Jesus has announced to them, the, they're, the, they're the nobodies, by the way. The shepherds, the, the nobodies, the not wanted the people that you'd like to forget, you know, the stories and the scenes that you wish you couldn't remember. The picture this morning in the Scripture is that God's grace is going to burst through this, this surprising grace, his, his gracious gift is going to burst into the world on this hillside to a group of shepherds on the night that Jesus is born. One of my favorite Christmas stories, um, and it, it seemed fitting this morning with, with our children singing, and, and so it's, uh, it features a family that uh, knows nothing about Christmas. This is what this story is about. It's called The Best Christmas Pageant Ever, written by Barbara Robert, uh, Robinson. And if you've uh, never read this story to your children or your grandchildren, this is a great Christmas time story. I've loved reading it to my kids. It begins this way. It says, the Herdmans were the worst kids in the whole history of the world. They lied and stole and smoked cigars, even the girls, and talked dirty and cussed their teachers and took the name of the Lord in vain and set fire to Fred Shoemaker's old broken-down tool house. And the six Herdman kids had no father, and their mother worked two jobs. They stole lunches, got in fights, never really bathed, and pretty much ran wild terrorizing the other kids at school. Church was the one place the other kids felt safe because the Herdmans would never set foot there. But then the Herdmans heard that the church offered refreshments after Sunday school. So they began to show up for the cookies and Kool-Aid. And when the church held auditions for the annual Christmas pageant, the Herdmans threatened the other kids and grabbed all the best parts. They were not what you'd call model citizens or Christians. And the townspeople didn't want to have anything to do with them. Our narrator tells us that Elmer Hopkins, the minister's son, has been Joseph for as long as I can remember. And my friend Alice Wendelkin is married because she's so smart, so neat and clean, and most of all, so holy looking. Well, the parents, they all rebel against the idea of the herdman's children singing cast in the pageant. Alice's mother told the ladies, uh, told the ladies' aid that it was sacrilegious to let Imogene Herdman be merry. Some people said it wasn't fair for a whole family who didn't even go to church to barge in and take over the pageant. No one was going to dare let their infant play Jesus so that he could be taken care of by the rough and tumble Herdmans. Everyone in church assumed the Christmas pageant starring the Herdmans would be a disaster. Yet, the, the, the Herdmans, the very type of people that Jesus reached out to, the people on the fringe of the society, the nobodies, the not wanted, 
and they end up crashing into the surprising grace of the story of Jesus. That's what's happening on this hillside. Listen to these words that Luke writes. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. This is just after the, uh, the, the birth of Jesus is recorded. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, help us this morning to hear these words. To, to set ourselves um, in the place of the shepherds hearing this incredible news. Father, would you draw us to your son Jesus this morning. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing I want you to notice, look at the, the intimate audience of this first advent announcement. So, so the baby's born, and then in verse 8, the scene changes, and we take into a hillside outside of the city, and it's nighttime. And there's this group of shepherds, and they're around there, and they're watching their flocks, and an angel appears, and the angel's the first preacher of the gospel, the first bringer of the good news of great joy. Now listen, angels are scary. I mean, I guess they are. Every time you see an angel encountered, the first words they have to say are, fear not, don't, don't be afraid. Having come from the presence of God, they, they shine with his glory, and it's, it's a fearful thing to behold. And now, one of the things to know about shepherds is they didn't have a, a great reputation. So... They were at the bottom of the, of the food chain, of the social hierarchy. They, they um, had a humble status in the society around them. They were nobodies that lived among somebodies, if you will. So much so that if you were accused of a crime and the only witness that there was to take the stand in your defense was a shepherd, you were in trouble. 
That's how they were seen. They're lowly men. This is who the angel is sent to proclaim the good news. This is where the gospel is preached for the very first time. And notice, it's, it's good news of great joy for who? For all the, the people. It's for everyone. The whole world is being gathered by Caesar Augustus to be counted and to be taxed. In fact, as late as the third century, you could still go to the census records and see Mary and, and Joseph and, and Jesus' name recorded. This is good news for all the people. And then you look at the next line, verse 11. Is it, for unto you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Unto you. So it's personal, it's, it's intimate, it's for you, the lowliest, the, the weakest, the marginalized, the nobodies among the somebodies. He's born for you. And then you get, in verse 11, you get these three descriptors of Jesus. And it's the only place all these three descriptors appear at one time. He's a Savior. And what that means is this. If you have ever sinned against God, you need a Savior. The, the angel said to, to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, he said, he said, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. See, only God can forgive sins against God. And that's why God sent the eternal Son uh, into the world, because he is God. That's why Jesus said the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. The Son of Man has been given authority on earth to forgive sins. Therefore, a Savior was born. This is what the angels say. He's the Christ in English. It's the English for Christos, which means the anointed one. Which, if you go back to the Old Testament, means Messiah. It's the one that's been long predicted and long awaited. The anointed one above all others, says Psalm 45.7. The final anointed king, the final anointed prophet, the final anointed priest. In him, all the promises of God are yes. This is the one who would fulfill all the hopes and the dreams of Israel. And, and more. Because he's also, what the angels announce, he's the Lord. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The ruler, the, the sovereign, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He's the Lord of the universe. The one who exercises supernatural authority over all Things unto you, he's your savior, your hope, your everlasting God. Can you just imagine the shepherds hearing this? I mean, I think one shepherd would have looked at the other and said, Do you, do you think the angel knows where he is? Interestingly enough, 
This is the last time you're going to have an angel preach the gospel. From here on out, the honor is given to men. And the shepherds, they become the first preachers of the gospel, the first tellers of this good news of great joy. They're given the, the message. The good news is given to them. It's theirs. They're not the priests. They're not the religious leaders. They're not the rulers or celebrities or pastors. No, nobody. They're the nobodies. Just on a hillside watching sheep. That's who it comes to. It's the intimate audience of the first announcement of this first advent. Second thing to notice, though, beginning in verse 13, is the praise in heaven and, uh, and on earth that takes place. 13, it, it's this remarkable scene. Actually, it's breathtaking, really. If, if one angel shows up to the shepherds and makes the announcement and leaves them, you know, shaking in their boots with fear, imagine what the whole heavenly host would have done. The translation's missed on us a little bit. I mean, what it means is this, this angel army, the whole heavenly army shows up like, like this army of angels. You can think about it this way. It took one angel to deliver the news to the shepherds. And it took a whole army of angels to respond to that news. But we're given a hint of the magnitude of this event in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace amongst those whom he's pleased. They're the first Christmas carolers, if you will. The angels caroling for the shepherds. One writer said it this way. He says, think of the Royal Opera from London marching down in full array to the homeless shelter and singing their heart out for the beggars. And what they sing is about peace on earth. Well, what kind of peace? You know, Rome was, was famous for their propaganda of peace, the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It wasn't that kind of peace. Listen to Isaiah in Isaiah 9. For, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. See, one of the things you find when you're looking at Luke chapter 2, and as Luke's telling the story, Caesar Augustus is summoning the whole world under the name of peace to increase the burden of taxes. What you find out really is that God's summoning the whole world to fulfill his word. 
to, to establish the throne of his son, to, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See, God's glory comes, it's revealed in the birth of this child, his son. God's peace comes everywhere that it is received. And the increase of it, there will be no end. So see what's happening is Isaiah, he, he's looking forward at the event. Luke, as he's telling the story, he, he's looking back, and, and they're both looking at the same event, event. They're both seeing the same day. And Isaiah, he writes with hope. And, and Luke, he's, he's writing this from the, from the standpoint of fulfillment. You know, the next time you see the whole hosts of angels gathered, it's all the way into Revelation chapter 5, and the, the seals are about to be broken. History, as we know it, is, is coming to an end, and, and Jesus is at the throne. And, and one angel asks another, who, who's worthy to open the, the scroll and, and to break the seals? Who, who, who's worthy to, to bring history to its fulfillment? That's the question. It says the myriad of angels responded. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, number, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So it's the pattern. God receiving infinite glory and, and man receiving unending peace. And that's the incarnation. That's what we mean when we say the incarnation, that God stepped out of eternity into humanity and took on flesh. He's, he's absolutely, completely undiminished. He's God. And totally and completely, 100% human being. And his deity doesn't diminish his humanity, and his humanity doesn't diminish his deity. He, he's come to perfectly represent and reconcile and unite that which has been lost because of sin. I want you to notice something real quick with me, and then we'll close, but in verse 12, look at verse 12 with me again. Can we put verse 12 up on the screen? The announcement says, and this will be a sign for you. And then it goes on and it says, that you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This will be a sign. And the sign is that when you show up, you'll find a baby that's wrapped in these swaddling clothes and lying in a, in a manger, uh, a, a feed trough. It's going to be the sign. One of the things you would make note of if you were a, a Bible nerd scholar is how sparse the telling is of these events in Luke chapter 2. The, the, the story's not 
Luke hasn't drugged the story out. I mean, he's told a, a very quick and efficient story. He's left out lots of details, leaves more questions um, than he has answers, honestly. But in the economy of space here in these verses, he mentions two times about a baby that's, that's uh, wrapped in swaddling claws and laid in a manger. Verse 7 above, just before our reading started. And here in verse 12, this will be the sign. It always gets me. It's a sign that's announced by the angels, a heavenly sign, a sign from God, a sign that will unmistakably bear witness to the fact that God has become man and dwells among us, that the Christ is here, the salvation's here, the King is here, it's the Lord. And then the sign is that you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a, in a feed trough. And then the angels, the choir of angels show up and sing a multitude of hosts. You know what the sign is? The sign is that you'll find this baby and he's going to be wrapped up like a mummy. And he's going to be laying in a, in a carved out stone that looks like a tiny coffin. That's the sign. The Son of God, the the eternal Son of God, the Word, the Beloved, the High King of the universe and of all creation, enters the world in a cave, born to poverty in the midst of a, the scandalous pregnancy of a teenage girl, welcomed by the smelly night shift shepherds, greeted with what would have looked like grave clothes and a coffin. And in all this, all of this, this is the sign. It brings the multitude of angels to their feet in this full voice. And I wonder if Mary, in her, in her interview with Luke, because that's how Luke says he, he went about telling the story. Because he interviewed all the eyewitnesses and all those that knew. And I wonder if, if when he talks with Mary, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't find her with a lump in her throat as she tells this in detail and in a story, and an account of the birth of Jesus that, that she tells so sparsely. In many ways, it hardly makes sense until you get to the very end of the story of Luke. See, near the end of Luke's gospel... We find Jesus dead on a cross. And there's a man named Joseph, another Joseph. And he comes and he'll ask the Roman authorities for the body of Jesus. And the story tells us that he had been looking for the kingdom of God. And by this time, you know, everybody's reading this gospel that they were looking for the kingdom of God. And so what he does is he finds himself taking the dead body of Jesus off the cross, wrapping him in grave clothes, laying him in a tomb cut out of the stone. Listen as I read the beginning of the story and the end of the story together. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped 
and swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And you go all the way to the end, Luke 23, 53, it says this. And he took the body down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. And in an instant, the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus come together. We discover this is what he came to do all along. He came to take our place. We who were, who were born, but born in sin and, and rebellion and born to die, born in poverty, our stories are scandalous. Even the best among us have sin and shame and stains of, of sin that litter our life. Jesus enters the world as one of us. He becomes one of us. God became man. That's, that's the incarnation. He, he, he gave himself to us, and then he gave himself for us. Not only did he take on humanity, but, but he clothed himself in our sin and our rebellion and our scandal, and then he took our place in death. He died our death, wearing our grave clothes, bound in our sin. Takes our filthy rags and clothes us with his robe of righteousness. Trades places with us. This is the good news of great joy for all the people that the story doesn't end in the manger and it doesn't end in the cross and it doesn't end in the grave. It ends with the resurrection. And three days later, the disciples come to mourn those who loved him. They find the tomb empty and the body gone, and the clothes lying there folded up because the grave is empty. To the Gospels for the first recipients, those on that first day, a grieving mother named Mary, a scandalous woman whom Jesus loved, a friend who betrayed him in his greatest hour of need, denied knowing him, cursed him. And this is the good news. The angels are announcing for all people, for you, for, for me. See, what Luke is telling us is when you hear the good news announced, when the, when the gospel breaks in, the, the surprising grace of God breaks into your life and into your story. It does something to you. It saves you. Listen to the end of the best Christmas pageant ever. This is how Robinson ends the story. You ready? Christmas Eve arrived. Mom didn't know what to expect. It felt like a terrible disaster was about to descend. There was the usual chaos as the kids arrived. The little shepherds and angels were crying and cranking. They were all, all in the wrong place. The lights were dimmed. The music began. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. It was the cue for Mary and Joseph to enter, but the, the herdmans hadn't arrived. They were nowhere in sight. What was the delay? The, the music ended and humming was put in its place. The anticipation was building. Did, did the herdmans bail? Well, Ralph and Imogene suddenly appeared. 
But there was no shoving or pushing. They just stood there as if they weren't sure they were in the right place. Maybe it was the crowd or the dimmed lights. And Mary was dressed in her costume, but the veil was crooked and she wore these huge earrings. And Ralph looked uncomfortable on stage. They looked like refugees we see on the television news. That's what it must have been like for the Holy Family. Feeling lost and out of place, uncertain what will happen next. They were stuck out in the barn. No, no one cared what happened to them. They, were, they weren't neat and tidy. Perhaps Mary and Joseph looked more like Imogene and Ralph than we care to admit. Imogene held the baby as if it was going to burp on her shoulder. Did baby Jesus have colic? Isn't that the whole point, though? Jesus was born, lived, and would die. He was a real person. The night the baby seemed more real than most other Christmas Eves. Next, Gladys stomped on her. Dirty sneakers stuck out from under her robe. Her halo was on crooked. Since Gladys was the only one in the pageant who had anything to say, she made the most of it. Hey, unto you, a child's born, she hollered, as if it was for sure the best news in the world. All the shepherds trembled, sore afraid of Gladys mainly, but it looked good anyway. Leroy, Claude, and Ollie came in, but they didn't have the glass bath bead jars that were used in the other years. They came in quietly and placed a ham at the feet of Mary and the baby. Barbara knew where it came from. She, she'd seen her dad working in the church Christmas committee to prepare the family food baskets for the poor. Each basket got a ham. This was the Herdman's Christmas charity ham. People never knew these kids to give anything away. When it was time for the cast to exit, the Herdmans must have forgot. They just stood there. They were quiet, just taking the whole scene in. There was this mysterious serenity that, that took over the place. The lights dimmed. The candles were lit by people in the pews. Everyone began to sing Silent Night. Barbara looked over at Imogene, and she was crying. Imogene Herdman was crying. In the candlelight, her face was all shining with tears, and she didn't even bother to wipe them away. She just stood there. Awful old Imogene and her crookedy veil and crying and crying and crying and the tears streamed down her face as she tightly clutched the baby doll. Awful old Imogene with her crooked, crooked veil and huge earrings and smudged face sitting there crying. It was the best Christmas pageant ever. This is the funny thing about it. For years I'd thought about the wonder of Christmas and the mystery of Jesus' birth and never really understood it, but now... Because of the Herdmans, it didn't seem so mysterious after all. When Imogene had asked me what the pageant was about, I told her it was about Jesus, but that was just part of it. It was about a new baby and his mother and father who were in a lot of trouble. No money, no place to go, no doctor, no, nobody knew them. And then arriving from the east, like my uncle from New Jersey, some rich friends. But Imogene, I guess, didn't see it that way. Christmas came over her all at once. A case of chills or fever. And so she was crying and walking into the furniture. Afterward, there were candy canes and tiny testaments for everyone and a poinsettia plant for my mother from the whole Sunday school. Put the costumes away, folded them up, collapsed the manger. Just before we left, my father snuffed out the last of the tall white candles. I guess that's everything, he said. Stood at the back of the church. All over now. It's quite a pageant. Then he looked at my mother. What's that you've got? It's the ham, she said. They wouldn't take it back. 
They wouldn't take back any of the candy either, or the little Bibles. But Imogene did ask for a set of the Bible story pictures, and she took out the Mary picture and said it was exactly right, whatever that means. I think it meant that no matter how she saw herself, Imogene liked the idea of Mary in the picture, all pink and white and pure looking, as if she never washed the dishes or cooked supper or did any at all except have Jesus on Christmas Eve. But as far as I'm concerned, Mary's always going to look a little like Imogene Herdman, sort of nervous and bewildered, ready to clobber anyone who laid a hand on her baby. When we came out of the church that night, it was cold and clear and crunchy snow underfoot, bright, bright stars overhead. And I thought about the angel of the Lord, Gladys, with her skinny legs and dirty sneakers sticking out from under the robe, yelling at us everywhere, hey, unto you a child is born. Indeed, unto us this night a child was born and his name is Jesus. And he comes to change our lives. He comes for all of us, especially those that are like the shepherds, or the herdmans, or like you, or like me. Maybe, maybe 2022, maybe this is the best Christmas you'll ever have. Because by God's grace and through his spirit, the eyes of your heart are opened like maybe they've never been opened before. And you see Jesus for who he is. Christ, the Savior, our Lord has been born. Merry Christmas. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, through the power of your word and the ministry and the operation of your Holy Spirit this morning and in the days to come as we We'll hear songs sung, and we will read the, the words on the page in our Bibles, and as we will consider what it means that you sent your Son into this world. Well, you didn't send your Son in that we would worship a baby, but you sent your Son here so that he would grow up. die on the cross, not for anything he did, but for everything it is that we have done and will do. But Father, you sent him to take on to himself all of our sin. Father, to die the death that we deserve, to lay in our grave. And then, Father, by your grace, You raised Jesus from the dead on the third day to new life. And for all that receive him, Father, peace is promised. Reconciliation is promised. He goes from being the, the baby in a manger to the Savior of the world, to our Savior, to my Lord. So, Father, I pray you do that 
in us. For those this morning that are, we've already come to that, Father, would you remind them, would you rekindle our, our affection this morning, Father, for those that have never come to the place of seeing Jesus for who he is and what he came to do. Father, what he is doing, even now, I pray you would open their eyes. Father, I pray by faith they would receive him as their Savior. We ask this the only way we can, and that is in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.